Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Uh, let's find out exactly uh, what else is going on in the world on a need-to-know basis. And joining me in that regard, Dan Riskin, who's a Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality. Dan, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. Very intrigued with a story that uh, is surfacing now that after 130 years and all kinds of different uh, maybe uh, attempts to try to uh, identify the real uh, identity of Jack the Ripper who terrorized the East End of London back there in the 19th century, uh, we might actually be getting some serious answers. Do you hear this? Yeah, this is exciting. It's a paper that's in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. And, I mean, take it with a grain of salt because, uh, you know, there's always a lot of assumptions about how things have been preserved and things like this. But there's a shawl that belonged to one of the victims. Her name was Catherine Eddowes. She was the fourth victim of the so-called Jack the Ripper. And uh, that shawl uh, has some stains on it, uh, blood stains and also semen stains that are thought to belong to Jack the Ripper. And so the big reason for the paper was just to see if they could get DNA out of it. And so they they did get some DNA out of it. But uh, then the question was, to whom does the DNA belong? And they were able to find DNA by using mitochondrial DNA. Mm Uh, you're able to match DNA. If you have a a living descendant of the person whose DNA you're trying to match, it's exactly the same. So, you know, your DNA is only half like your mom's, and and your DNA is only a quarter like your grandma. And so if you go a whole bunch of generations on normal DNA, um, it all shuffles the deck, and so you can't really trace it very easily if you don't have a DNA sample from the actual person. But mitochondrial DNA is like this miracle thing where basically the mitochondria are these parts of the cell that get passed down from your mother, and then they get passed down from the, to the next mother. It, it just goes down the, the mother line, and the men never pass it on. And so everybody has the mitochondrial DNA of their mother, and then their maternal grandmother, and then their maternal, maternal great-grandmother, and so on. And so that DNA doesn't change. It doesn't get shuffled as it goes. And so they looked at mitochondrial DNA, and they looked at uh, descendants of uh, the victim and some of the suspects, and what they were able to find was that the, they found DNA that matched the victim, that's her blood, uh, but they also found DNA that matches the descendant of, do you have a drum roll sound effect? <laughs> there it is. Aaron Kosminski, a 23-year-old Polish barber who was also a prime suspect at the time. And, of course, barbers, you know, they would do their way around a blade, and uh, Jack the Ripper would remove organs. Uh, poor Catherine Eddowes had a kidney and her uterus removed mm. after her throat was slit. Uh, so uh, they believe that they've they've sealed the case. Not everyone is convinced. There are some question marks, but it's certainly pretty strong evidence that that's who done it. Well, he did live in Whitechapel, if I understand correctly. Yeah, and he was one of the people that they were suspecting. I mean, there are a couple of things that... So people that really look at this DNA stuff a lot say that mitochondrial DNA really, to be used properly, it excludes candidates. You don't use it to prove a candidate. So they're saying that, you know, it's not like they get the whole sequence of all the letters. It's more like they look at the banding patterns, and if they're very different, uh, you, can out, you, can, you can rule somebody out. And so they're saying it's, it's unusual for you to use it to, to match somebody this way. But the other... The other fact about this that uh, 
that came to my mind uh, looking at this is uh, Catherine Eddowes was a prostitute. And so just because the semen of a person is on her shawl doesn't necessarily mean that's the person who murdered her. And so it might be that this was a client of hers, not necessarily her murderer. And so that's another possibility they could give the false answer. But of course, this stuff, you know, they didn't even use fingerprints back then, Mm -hmm. never mind DNA. So uh, it's just by luck that this shawl has, has stuck around. It's the only piece of physical evidence remaining from those 1888 murders. And, uh, and here they're trying to, to wring whatever truth they can out of it. It's a cold case that might have been rekindled after 130 years and uh, may exonerate Queen Victoria's grandson, Prince Albert Victor, who uh, was one of those suspected as well in the broad swath that this thing has engendered over the last 130 years. Again, with Dan Riskin, Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality, i got to ask you about something else that uh, is presented to me here. Uh, honeybees can help monitor pollution. How is yeah. that? This is a neat little study out of the University of British Columbia, and I think this is just an example of uh, scientists being creative and looking at weird things and then finding something and realizing, hey, this could be useful. So uh, people uh, in, in Vancouver, it's quite popular to have pet bees, you know, to have an urban apiary. So you get a beehive in your backyard. There are certain rules. You have to be a certain distance from buildings and things like that. But if you have bees in your backyard, it typically costs about 250 bucks to start a hive, and they make honey for you. And so, and, you know, they work and they're, they're pollinating the flowers and there's all kinds of reasons that that's a, a fun thing to do. And that's gaining some popularity in Toronto as well. But what these researchers did was to look at the honey in different hives and compare all these different trace elements that are in there. Honey overall, you know, it's a bunch of sugar and some other stuff. But when bees make honey, they're not just drinking nectar and then barfing and making honey, which, by the way, is what honey is. It's bee barf, mm. just to make it sound more appealing. Mm. But they also, you know, they drink water in the environment. They, ha- they pick up dust in their little cute little fur, um, all these things. And that stuff can end up in the honey. And what they found was that there were differences among the hives in terms of how much of these different chemicals were in the honey, and specifically lead, which is associated with uh, pollution from things like fossil fuels, lead was much more abundant in the honey that came from the Vancouver Harbor than from honey that came from agricultural areas. So they were able to show that bees are an effective way to sort of sample the environment and get a, a measure of air quality uh, without having to go set up some kind of air measuring device. You just go get the honey from the farmer's market, and if you know what hive it came from, you can measure the air quality around that hive. It's, it's, it's a really neat trick that they pulled off. Ain't nature grand. By the way, uh, what is the uh, status of bee colonies? Because there uh, were obviously some serious concerns about that just in the last year or two. Yeah, bee colonies are still doing very badly, and it's, but I think we're getting closer to an answer, and it turns out that it's a lot of the insecticides that people put on their fields. Surprise, surprise, bees being insects uh, take a hit on that. So what we're seeing is that a lot of these bee colony uh, die-offs are the result of a lot of these um, pesticides, and as governments move to sort of restrict certain pesticides from being used, there's some reason for hope. But I think the one, the one neat thing about bees that I always hang my hat on is that bumblebees are native they belong here, but uh, honeybees, when people talk about the decline of honeybees, I'm always feeling a little bit like that's like the decline of chickens 
on farms. They're brought here. Honeybees are European. They don't belong in these environments. So it's the bumblebees that we really need to be cheering for. The, the honeybees are great, but they're just domestic animals, just like a chicken or a cow. Mm. Uh, the bees that we really have to watch out for are the bumblebees, and they're very, very different. So if you're seeing a bee in your garden in the next few weeks, hopefully, knock on wood, mm. uh, cheer for the bumblebees. They're the ones who need the help. Props to the bumblebees. Yeah, big exactly. ups to the bumbles. Uh, Dan, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> Look forward to doing it again, as always, real soon. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks a lot. You got it, Dan Riskin, Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.